Just like they said in the rounds, F them picks, man. <laughs> F them picks at the end of the day. But, man, bringing Teron in, man, they definitely want to put all the right pieces around the quarterback because the quarterback is the most important player on the field. You know, having myself, Teron, and a few more other pieces that were already here, like you definitely like you definitely can tell that the owner want to win, Coach McDaniels, Chris Greer, all, all of those guys want to win. So we just all looking forward to the challenge, to the, to the journey, and I can't wait to work, man. FM Picks Indeed, Tyreek Hill introduced yesterday as the newest member of the Miami Dolphins. A crazy couple of weeks in the National Football League. We're here for the next two hours to get you up to speed on everything that's been happening. He's Peter King. I'm Mike Florio. It's Friday, March 25. Where in the hell did March go? Hello, Peter. How are you? Well, Mike, I mean, I just keep waiting for there to be some semblance of an offseason. I don't know how you do it. I write one column a week. I'm on your show. I have a lot of work to do, but man, I I don't do very much like on a on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. It just it never stops. It never ever stops. And Mike, I'll just tell you this. The Los Angeles Rams, the Super Bowl Rams are a partial culprit in this offseason. Because just like Tyreek Hill says about them picks, look and see what the Oakland Raiders have done. No picks in the top 85 in this draft. Look and see what the Miami Dolphins have done now. No picks in the top 100 of this draft. So the statement about the picks is echoing league-wide. Well, and you're right. And that's one of the big reasons why these deals are happening. I called it yesterday the ramification of the nfl but but it takes two to tango if every team approached this like the rams these trades wouldn't happen you need to have some teams who value the veteran player willing to give up the draft picks willing to pay the player more than his current team will pay him and you have to have a current team that is willing to say you want to give me five draft picks for a guy that is trying to get $72.2 million fully guaranteed out of me for the next three years, and I don't want to pay him that much. I know him better than anybody. I've had him since 2016 on my roster, 28 years old. He's still got some good years left, but I don't want to pay him what you want to pay him, and you want to give me all those picks? Hell yeah, I'll take all those picks. Hell yeah, I'll offload this guy that's going to suck up a huge chunk of salary cap space when I could go out and draft some guys and pay them a wage scale contract that is going to chew up a lot less of the cap. Yeah, I'll gladly do it. So you have to have both sides of that. That's the one thing everybody needs to remember. It can't just be F them picks. You got to have other teams that are ready to say, we'll take them if you don't want them. And we'll give you this player with name recognition. We're ready to move on if we can get all these picks and reload from the bottom up and create some new Tyree kills, create some new Devontae Adams that maybe we can flip later. But you got to have both. If they're all thinking one way, and for years, they all thought the way of, we, we're not giving up our veteran player. We're not giving up our established talent. We're not going to trade him in for a roll of the dice with these lottery tickets. Now you've got teams that are willing to, to, to go get and give up the the draft picks and make those moves and teams that are are still valuing those picks as long as you have both 
we're going to have off seasons like this. Mike, I, I just keep thinking. Uh, so I, I had a, a long conversation uh, last weekend with Dave Ziegler, the new general manager of the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. And one of the things that we that we were talking about is about how, you know, just as you say, everybody sees this differently. Everybody. And so when everybody sees it differently, you're going to have a general manager with a really good player view Devontae Adams, let's say, differently than Dave Ziegler would. Okay, so... Brian Gutekunst didn't want to get rid of Devontae Adams. But the fact is, when, 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 a, when a general manager is confident in his ability to replenish a roster, and I, I, keep, I told a bunch of people this this week, remember, Devontae Adams was the 53rd pick in the draft when he came out. The Green Bay Packers hold the 53rd pick in this draft. And it's the exact same thing that Kansas City did with Tyreek Hill. Now, if you sort of look back on the way that Kansas City has built its roster, just remember, because this is a this is really a, a philosophy on how you should construct your team and in 2016 the Chiefs picked a tarnished college player with great talent but he had been tarnished because of his domestic uh, violence accusations and so they were able to get him with the 165th pick in this draft and if you ask Andy Reid and Brett Veach, the general manager, I guarantee you, you sit them down for a long time, they will tell you the draft is a risk-reward business, and as you go down the road, look, no one could have predicted that Tyreek Hill was going to be as good as he has been, you know, in his first six years or five years in the NFL. But every team that is confident in its player selection process Everyone is going to say, is not, they're not going to say F them picks. They're going to say, if I get pushed to the wall in a contract negotiation, give me those picks and we're going to do just fine with them. That's right. And then they hope when you take those picks that they are going to find the players who become the stars, who become the nucleus, who become the future of the team. That's the trade-off when you adopt the F them picks attitude. You're giving up all of these opportunities to find guys who can become part of your team. And where the Rams have done well, they trade away the most valuable of the lottery picks, the lottery tickets, but they've hit on their mid to late round guys in drafting and developing. Yes, they have. Because you still need to have that young core that grows as the years go by. You don't want to get to the point where you have no one in that age range of 25 to 28 that is the nucleus of your team. That's the risk you take when you send so many picks away. And when you look at what the Chiefs did 
in trading Tyreek Hill and the picks they got all through the draft, I they from their perspective, they had no qualms about this. They were happy about this opportunity. Now, again, they know Tyreek Hill better than anyone. So. I know of at least one team that did its homework on Tyreek Hill and was like, this guy's become a little bit too much of a diva for our liking. I think the Chiefs may be happy to move on from him. They'll go start fresh with someone else. They still have Patrick Mahomes. We saw all those guys a couple of weeks ago in Indy running four threes. They'll just go draft a couple of those guys, and they'll be playing with Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. And we, we were going to move on from Tyreek Hill at some point anyway. He was either going to retire or he was going to get cut or he was going to get injured. We move on from him at a time where we can get more than we ever would have dreamed we'd get for this guy. We traded him at the right time. We sold high. We bought low and we sold high, and we got – Seven years of great play out of him, and now we move on, and that's how they justify it. And right or wrong, we'll find out. It's going to be a great laboratory experiment. What does he do for the Dolphins? What do those picks do for the Chiefs? Will it be a win-win? Shereen Williams was saying last night on PFTPM, it could be a lose-lose. It could be. It's going to be fun to watch, and I think other teams are going to not just look at what the Rams did because they're copying the Rams now. Hey, the Rams have said F them picks and they won the Super Bowl, so we're going to say it too. If enough teams say it, they're all not going to win the Super Bowl. Somebody's going to fail miserably at this exercise, which is going to make it even more fascinating to watch it unfold, Peter. Well, Mike, I mean, you talk about how these teams are being constructed now, and let's just remember one thing, and you just mentioned it a minute ago, about the Rams, okay? Because just just remember that they have a bunch of day three picks who became really, really important for him. You know, I'll give you three examples. Sebastian Joseph Day, who became the glue to the interior of that defensive line. Greg Gaines, a fourth-round pick who, late this year, every time Aaron Donald opened his, opened his mouth when somebody would ask him how, how great he was playing, he would say, well, look at Greg Gaines. He's helping me. And, and then, you know, Nick Scott, the safety, the seventh-round pick, who was drafted only as a special teams player in 2019, he came out and he was one of the best safeties in football in the last two months of the year. So you're exactly right. You can, say, you can belittle your picks all you want, but if some of them in the late rounds of the draft do not come through, I will guarantee you, you're not winning the Super Bowl. It just doesn't work. You can't build such a top-heavy team and have nothing on the bottom. And I'll just say one other thing about what the Chiefs are doing. You know what? You're right, and Shireen is right. It's possible that this pick turns out to be, or this trade, I remember in baseball one time when I was growing up, there was a big trade made, and I forget which one it was, and it didn't work out well for either team. And you know how people, when they describe trades, they say, hey, that's a trade that's going to help both teams. Well, some of these trades you look at in retrospect and say, man, that's a trade that hurts both teams. But in this particular case, I am reminded of what Jimmy Johnson always said about draft choices. What he said is, everybody's, man, you're brilliant in the draft. You're such a great drafter and all that. And he goes, I'm not smarter than anybody else. I just give myself a lot more wiggle room and room to fail by having more picks than anybody else every year. And that is what the Kansas City Chiefs have done. 
They've got the 29th and 30th overall picks in this draft in a draft that is absolutely chock full of wide receivers. And I just want to say one last thing about receivers and Kansas City. And everybody will think, boy, it's a good thing that this never did happen. But just think about it for a minute. The year that Henry Ruggs came out in the draft, I found out late in the draft process and confirmed after the draft that as bizarre as it sounded, because they had, at the time, they had Sammy Watkins and Tyreek Hill, and they had a great crew of wide receivers. Demarcus Robinson, they, had, they were just rich at the receiver position. Brett Veach, if uh, Henry Ruggs had fallen to about 20 or 21, he had plans to aggressively try to trade up from low in the round to go get Henry Ruggs. And you would think, you got an embarrassment of riches at receiver and tight end right now. Why would you do that? And his whole thought was, you can never have enough great weapons for a great quarterback. So that's what I thought of when I saw this Tyreek Hill trade being made that, that I am really interested to see how the Kansas City Chiefs grade all these receivers and move around to get one that they really love. Well, that's right. And there has to be multiple that they've already scouted to the point where before they give up Tyree Kill, they have a sufficiently high degree of confidence they're going to get one of these guys. And now it comes down to when you pull the trigger to try to move up in round one to get the receiver that you really like. And for the other teams who are drafting ahead of the Chiefs, beware. If there's a receiver you really like, you may want to trade up before you get leapfrogged. Yeah by the Kansas City Chiefs. Five years ago, as Sean Payton is watching Patrick Mahomes slip toward his clutches, here comes the Chiefs to jump the Saints and get Patrick Mahomes. So the Chiefs know when they have to make their move. And this is a lot of the stuff that becomes cloak and daggerish when you get into the draft. And there's certain things that make their way out for us to talk about. And there's certain things that don't. Nobody knew that Payton loved Mahomes. Nobody knew that Andy Reid loved Mahomes. People got to keep their mouths shut. It's not good for us, but it's good for the teams. You keep your mouth shut about who you really like, and you just go get him. And if you like one of these receivers, and you're somewhere between 10 and 20, you better be careful, because if you don't maybe move up a spot or two before the Chiefs get a chance to pick you off, you're not going to get that guy. And... And, and I think that's how it's going to play out. It's going to make the, the draft fascinating because they're going to get one of these guys they really like. Or they're going to keep their mouths shut for so long that whoever they get, they're going to say, that's the guy we wanted all along. That's part of the, the PR success for the draft. you got to be ready to, to not say anything. So the guy you get, yeah, that's the guy that was at the top of our board. That's the guy we wanted all along. So uh, and, and, and whoever they get, again, they're pairing them up with Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. And now they have Marquez Valdez-Scantling. They have Juju Smith-Schuster. They have Miko Hardman. Something's got to give here, but I think they're going to try to find somebody that they can groom to become an impact player like Tyreek Hill was. Let's talk a little bit about Tyreek with the Dolphins because he said it at the beginning. They're getting all these weapons around quarterback Tua Tagovailoa, And on one hand, you can say, hey, he's like a kid on Christmas that's been spoiled rotten by Santa, parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, everybody. All these weapons, all these toys. The other side of it is no excuses in 2022 for Tua. Can't say 
I don't have receivers. Can't say I don't have blockers. Can't say I don't have running backs. Can't say I don't have a good defense. If the Dolphins struggle, you know who's getting the blame, Peter. And Teddy Bridgewater becomes the most popular guy in South Florida. Look, when this happened, I just said to myself, everybody is going to have the same player on their show me something list at the top of show me something. <laughs> and that's Tua Tagovailoa. Now, every Daniel single, Jones is upset. Every single. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. Uh, but, Mike, I think that it's justified, too. Because if you have great weapons on your offense, and look, there are not many teams right now that you can say has a, have, you know, collectively a better set of weapons than the Miami Dolphins do right now. And look, I think one of the things that we can't forget is that intelligently, uh, Chris Greer franchise Mike Gesicki because now at a reasonable price, uh, they're able to keep a top five tight end in the NFL, maybe top seven, but, but probably top five. And now they've got great weapons on the outside that are going to make him even better and make him even more of a threat. The one thing we don't know, Mike, we do not know because we have not seen enough of it, is Tua Tonga-Valoa going to be able to, uh, you know, release the power in his left arm and be able to air it out to Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill. You didn't ask that question about Patrick Mahomes because you saw him do it all the time, on the run, in the pocket, whatever. But now we don't know that Tua can do this. And we'll see if he can consistently. And look, there's a decent, that's not a, that, I mean, I'm not saying that's a short throw. But to me, Tua has got to show he can make those kind of throws consistently with this offense. And everybody's going to be watching for that. One thing that we're seeing there is getting rid of the ball quickly. If you have better blocking, you can maybe wait a little bit longer and let things happen. He doesn't have the same elusiveness as a Patrick Mahomes and can run around and make those throws all on the fly. One of the things Tyreek Hill said yesterday, Tua is one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the NFL, and he is. Second best completion percentage on passes 20 or more yards down the field last season, but he threw it deep at the second lowest rate in the NFL, second only to the aforementioned That's Daniel point. Jones. So, and, and Peter, let's, there's another clip from Tyree Kill that may be very instructive about what's going to happen in Miami. Let's hear Tyree Kill talking about Mike McDaniel. This may or may not be in it. Maybe it is. If it's not, I'll tell you what else he said on the other side. Here's Tyree Kill talking about the coach who's going to be responsible for cooking this up into something special. He's probably the funniest head coach I've ever met in my life. You know, he's, he's, he's a dope guy, a fun guy to be around. I can tell that already, and his energy is contagious. You know, so I'm, I'm excited. You know, the way he was telling me he was going to get me the ball, that's always exciting for a receiver. But, like, my biggest thing is, like, his whole message off the field, man. Tyreek, just be you, man. He kind of sounded like Shrek a little bit. He was like, just be you, Reek. Just be you, Reek. 
And that's all I can ask for, man. I, I, I coach to have my back off the field. I can't share the secrets, man, but he just said, look, Reek, just gear up. It's going to be fun, all right? Because it's, I can, I'm going to just say this. The way that he utilized Debo Samuel in that offense was crazy, right? Debo Samuel is a freak athlete, right? So I'm just excited, man. That's all I'm going to say. Now, he also mentioned getting the ball in space and taking off with it. See, I don't know that this is going to be an offense like the Chiefs where you have to defend every blade of grass behind you. Yeah. I think you got to worry about what's happening in front of you and whether or not you're going to have a chance to close in on the guy once he gets a quick pass, once he gets a jet sweep. I don't think we're going to see Tyree Kill running between the tackles a lot like Debo Samuel. It's going to be more of a blur and he's going to hit the edge, and he's going to gain 15 yards, and he's going to run out of bounds. I don't think they want him to take the pounding that Debo Samuel takes. I don't think that he can, even though he is, he is compact, 5'10", and he is kind of thick and broad, and he can fly, obviously. But this opens up a new universe of things you can do underneath. So maybe Tua, Peter, will once again be the – quarterback with the second fewest number of passes thrown 20 or more yards down the field because all the action is going to happen in a compressed space with the idea that Tyreek Hill or Jalen Waddle or Raheem Mostert or Chase Edmonds is going to get the ball and just go look I mean you know Debo Samuel by their listed weights is 29 pounds heavier than Tyreek Hill and Debo Samuel got beat up this year or got beat up in 2021 in San Francisco. And so I, I don't think there's any way that Mike McDaniels can use, uh, you know, can use deep, uh, can, can use Tyreek Hill the exact same way he used Debo. You don't want your, you know, your biggest weapon to be getting scrunched and hit all the time the way uh, Debo Samuel was in that offense. But Mike, I'll also remind you of something one of his coaches, one of the coaches on the San Francisco staff told me after he got this job. You know, they said, just remember one thing about Mike. He's going to figure out a way with every player to highlight his strengths and try to take advantage of the defensive weaknesses with that particular player. And I think that's one of the reasons he gave a 215-pound wide receiver so many times. He gave him the ball so many times between the tackles. And I think you're going to see something. I don't know what it is yet, but he's going to find a way. And, And I think it is not just in like that jet sweep motion type of, of, of play, he will find some other way to get Tyreek the ball that we don't really know yet. If we can play those Debo Samuel plays again, if not, that's fine. But I noticed something as they were going through. The setup to the plays, I think, will be very similar for Tyreek Hill. We started with this screen pass. Now... Debo Samuel gets it, and he goes inside looking for contact. Tyreek Hill's going to get that ball, and he's going to break it outside. Debo Samuel gets the handoff. He cuts back in. No, Tyreek Hill's going to run around you to the end. There, there's a subtle but real difference in how 
Tyreek Hill is going to maneuver once he has the ball. Debo Samuel isn't afraid, and I'm not saying it's a fear thing. He's got the size and the power to sit, cuts inside. Tyreek Hill's not going to cut it back inside unless he knows that I'm fast enough to shoot back inside and they're not going to get me. He's going to be looking to run around you, not run into you. And so as the play starts, I don't think it's that different. It's what happens once the ball's in the player's hands. Yeah, I and and look, every coach is going to say to you, uh, I'm going to take advantage of what we think the defense can handle. But I think, honestly, that's probably a very big reason why he is the coach, the head coach of an NFL team today. Because you saw last year, uh, basically the remaking of a player. And I wrote about this um, right after the Super Bowl when I talked to Mike McDaniels. I, I, he made this point to me that last year in the offseason, he said to Debo Samuel, look, if you become a leader and it's not, he said Debo like scrunched up his face when he heard the word leader. He goes, no, no, not that kind of leader. I'm talking about the Derek Jeter kind, and I'm paraphrasing because he didn't use Jeter. The Derek Jeter kind who totally leads by example. Derek Jeter doesn't make fire and brimstone speeches. That's not leadership, okay? Leadership is showing everybody, is working harder than everybody. Be out at practice first, stay late. Uh, Show them that you're working at everything. And he told Debo Samuel, if you do this, I guarantee you two things will happen. You will be first team all pro and I will be a head coach in the NFL. And both things came true because very unexpectedly, <clears throat> Debo Samuel joined Cooper Cup and Devontae Adams as the three first team all pro NFL receivers. And Mike, one other thing I would say about the three all pro NFL receivers as it relates to the Green Bay trade of Devontae Adams and the Kansas City trade of Tyreek Hill. The three receivers who made first-team All-Pro, the highest pick was number 36 overall, Debo Samuel. Devontae Adams, 53. Cooper Cup, 69. So, read all about it. There's receivers throughout recent drafts, and I guarantee you that there are going to be second- and third-round receivers who are going to turn into great players in the NFL because recent history, the road is littered with them. And one of the key ingredients is to have a great quarterback too, who can take advantage of those skills, who can get you the football and a good head coach who can maybe get you the football in space. If the quarterback isn't going to be consistently throwing the ball down the field, you mentioned Devontae Adams and a very astute reader pointed out to me via email overnight that The Raiders actually got two big wins this week because, number one, they trade for Devontae Adams, one of the best receivers in the NFL. And number two, the contract they give to Devontae Adams throws a wrench permanently in the relationship between the Chiefs and Tyreek Hill and gets Hill the hell out of the division at a time when all these teams are loading up with veteran talent. So double win, double whammy for the Raiders. Here's Drew Rosenhaus, who represents Tyreek Hill, 
on the Joe Rose show yesterday talking about how that Devontae Adams trade turned everything upside down and paved the way for Hill to be traded to Miami. The bottom line is he was in the last year of his contract. We'd actually worked out a restructure that the Chiefs wanted just a week before. Um, And it really looked like we were going to just continue to work towards a contract extension. There was even a report that, you know, we were close to a deal. That wasn't accurate, but we were working on it. And then the Adams deal really flipped everything upside down. And, uh, you know, the Chiefs, I think they they had the – you know, the foresight to see that Tyreek was in the last year of his contract and we weren't going to take, you know, a deal that, that wasn't better than Adams. So they recognized that this would be probably their last year with Tyreek. And this was their opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to potentially rebuild at that, at that position. And the Dolphins are a team that is trying to get to where the Chiefs are. It was reported on March 4 that the Chiefs and Tyreek Hill were negotiating an extension to that contract that had one year left on. And on March 12, Tyreek Hill posted a tweet that Shereen Williams saw it. It was a Saturday night, and she said, does this mean he's got an extension coming? And I looked into it. It's like, no, no extension. And it didn't dawn on me at the time that maybe this was a goodbye. We came a long way. Thank you, Chiefs Kingdom. I'm forever indebted. Things got quiet after that until the trade happened and along the way Devontae Adams was traded and Peter here's what's amazing to me when you consider all of the people who are covering the NFL all the time all the people who are plugged into the matrix all the people who are covering it nationally all the people who are covering these teams locally after the Devontae Adams trade last week Drew Rosenhaus gets permission to shop Tyreek Hill and he contacts every single NFL team Every one of them eventually negotiates with roughly a dozen. And none of this gets out. None of it gets reported. We had no idea this was happening until it boiled down to Jets and Dolphins, and it was right at the point where a deal was being done. That's when we first caught any whiff of Tyreek Hill being traded. Every team knew that Rosenhaus was shopping one of the great weapons in football, one of the best receivers of this generation, and nobody said a word about it. It's just amazing at a time when people are swarming. And maybe it's because we're all so damn busy covering the huge story of the day every single day that this one slipped through our collective five hole. But it really does astound me at a time when there's so much information and rumor and gossip about the NFL. We didn't see this coming. Nobody saw it coming. Mike, I, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Drew Rosenhaus being able to use leverage uh, as well as anybody in his business, maybe better than anybody in his business. But I'll also make this point. You know, I understand when everybody would, what everybody would say about the Devontae Adams contract. I get it. But Devontae Adams is not playing under the fourth and fifth years of his contract. You know, I'm not saying those are upfront phony years, But there is a clear understanding that at age 33 that he's not going to be making $36 million in base salary from the Las Vegas Raiders. And at 34, he's certainly not going to be making $36 million in base salary. So although that has gotten a lot of attention, you know, the gross dollars in this contract, 
whatever, five years, 140, whatever it was. Just remember, this at its core is really a three-year, $67 million contract that after the third year, if he stays in Vegas, is going to be redone. So I, I don't know. I, I, hey, look, I, I think Miami made a move that Stephen Ross is, says, look, I am sick of having our goal being to be the second or third best team in this division. You know, so I get it. I know why he did this. I know why they did this. And I do not fault them one bit for reaching for the brass ring. <laughs> but, you know, you got to be realistic about what exactly the, the Devontae Adams contract is. Well, and you're right. Three years, 67.5. And that was something we spotted from the get-go. Anytime one of these deals sounds a little rich, sounds a little off, Von Miller, six years, 120. The reality it is usually is built into the back end. <laughs> and Peter, it's I don't know why they still do it. Like if I'm the player, what benefit do I derive from having everyone I know think I'm making a hell of a lot more money than I really am? They're already asking me for everything. They're not going to ask me for anything less if they think I'm making 20 million a year. After, Mike, uh, isn't it? A don't lot, you, know, you think? Don't you think it's it's just pride? <clears throat> I am going to make on paper more than any receiver who's ever played. Period. It is a point of pride. I am going to beat DeAndre Hopkins. That's what I'm going to do in this contract. And that, to me, that and look, I don't know how long Tyreek Hill is going to play. I, I don't. I don't know how many years he'll play, but. Almost every gigantic contract gets addressed two years or at least one, but but most times two years before it's over in in the long term. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Adams. Yeah, the Tyreek Hill deal is a prime example of this. There's fluff on the back end that drove it up to a $30 million per year contract in new money average. Devontae Adams, $28 million.25 in new money average. And I think it's more for the benefit of the agent than it is for the player because the agent wants to have his or her name attached to that contract. It technically goes into all the databases as the richest new money deal, even if yeah. the back end of it is going to get flushed down the toilet. But it seems like every day or every other day, there's another one of these deals done where your spider sense tells you, there's some fluff and some puff on the back end. And and if you if you think that it is, if you follow it closely and you have a feeling it is, usually it is. Every once in a while, it's like, wow, that's real. That's impressive. But but a lot of the times it is it is a bunch of crap that gets peddled voluntarily and happily by the people who get the initial text messages from the agents because if they say, No thanks, I'm not gonna pass this BS along to my audience, the other ones will. So it all gets out there and it gets to bake in for 24 to 48 hours before the truth catches up to it. By then, nobody really cares, except for the really glaring ones. And one of the really glaring ones this year was Juju Smith-Schuster. You had everybody say, one year, 10.75. Well, as soon as I saw this, there's no way it's one year, 10.75. It ends up being one year, 3.25. 
with a $7.5 million upside, which on one hand, he's going to have a better chance to earn now without Tyreek Hill. On the other hand, it's going to be harder. <laughs> sure is. It's going to be harder without Tyreek Hill because Tyreek Hill's not going to be attracting all that attention. And, Peter, this is one thing I'd love yeah. to know because I looked at the timeline. Devontae Adams gets traded one day. The next day, Juju agrees to terms with the Chiefs. What did the Chiefs know about Tyreek Hill when that deal was done? What did Juju know about Tyreek Hill? Juju put his name on that contract. I bet thinking, the Chiefs hey, I'm be knew exactly what was going to happen. Yes. I would bet the Chiefs knew exactly what was going to happen. Do you think they're going to tell Juju no, Smith-Schuster? No. Heck no. But it's a hell of a way. Why would they? Peter, it's a hell of a way to start the relationship. Because now Juju Smith-Schuster's got to be wondering at some level. And he's been around long enough. That, and he's, he's a savvy guy. He's got to be thinking, hey, those bastards. They knew what they were going to do. No, I you know I'm what he's thinking? Up with I'll tell you, Mike. I'll tell you exactly what he's thinking. Like I, I, I would, I would think he's an, he's a <laughs> Juju Smith-Schuster is obviously he's uh, you know he carries himself as this jokester, humanitarian. You know he's a he's this guy's a, a good guy. I think a really good guy, right. and he understands. <clears throat> If I'm healthy for 17 games, I'm catching 120 balls in this offense without any question. I'm catching 120 balls. And a year from now, we'll see who lowballs me. You know, a year from now, I am going to get paid the same way that these guys get paid. Maybe I'm not going to make 30 million a year, but I'll be making 22 million a year a year from now. And look, I, I, I've thought about this a lot the last couple of days, just watching the world spin. There's a few players this year in the free agency crop or who have been traded who I look at it and I say to myself, that guy is going to have an incredible season. And I believe Juju Smith-Schuster, if healthy, will catch more than 100 balls, have more than 10 touchdowns, and average more than, let's say, 13 or 14 yards a catch. In that offense, he is going to be lethal. There's another wrinkle to this that's even more fascinating. Marquez Valdez-Scantling, a four-year veteran who has never caught more than 38 passes and who never has generated more than 690 yards. His high in touchdowns was six in 2020. He gets reportedly... And we need to put that in air quotes and asterisks. Reportedly, three years, $30 million. That's another one that I want to see. And that's one that I think Juju wants to see. Wait a minute. I did one year 3.25 with this gigantic incentive package. And this guy, this MVS, who, who never had more than 690 yards playing with Aaron Rodgers, he's getting 10 a year. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what the MVS deal looks like. There's a chance... There's a chance there's all sorts of of, uh, BS flying around the NFL with these contracts this month, Peter. Yeah, I, you know, look, hey, Mike, have you noticed this year, every time somebody signs, every time somebody signs, the first 10 tweets are, oh, my God, what a great signing. uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, oh, he's going to. He's going to blow up in Kansas City. Oh, boy, he's going to get so many chances now that he's away from Divine. Oh, he's going to be great. I mean, the only contract 
Mike, what's the only contract that's been criticized in the last week and a half? I'll tell you, Christian Kirk. That's it. Yes. The only contract that people say, oh, what a stupid contract, giving that guy $17 million a year. And look, I'm not praising the contract. We'll see. Didn't seem very smart to me. But again, we'll see. Maybe he becomes uh, the, uh, you know, the sort of the Swiss Army knife of the Jacksonville offense, the way Debo Samuel was in San Francisco. I don't know, but we'll see. But every other signing has been, oh my God. I mean, I'll make this prediction. Every team in the NFL this year is going to win more than 12 games and be active on February 1st chasing the Super Bowl. All 32 teams. (laughs) That's how great they've all done in free agency. But, but, you know, Peter, it's funny that you say that because, well, but it's it's the psychology of the news-breaking wing of NFL media. And it's the usual suspects. God bless you. It's the usual suspects every year. And excuse me. In order to be, bless you again. In order to be in position to get that text from the agents, you have to be willing to kind of chip away a little piece of your soul one tweet at a time and buy into that great contract. Ooh, great contract. Great job by the agents. Great job by because if you don't, you don't get those texts. So we see the flood of tweets from all the people who have been just clamoring for three weeks now. Gimme, 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 gimme this. Let me, let me, let me be, let me be the one who gets the tweet posted 26 seconds before the other guy does. And they all throw in that useless second sentence that praises the deal because you got to do that. It's part of the part of part of the game. You got to do that to be on the speed dial, to be in the group chat when the agent sends out the information because they only want people who are going to say, here's what the deal is, and I'm not going to breathe a word of the fact that there may be some BS cooked into the back end, and it's a great deal. And our job, my role, our role, I don't know. I don't know how much you care about it, but one of the things I do is I say, hey, folks, come on, let's peel this back. Let's be smart. Let's understand how this works. We've all got a role in this, but that's a, that's a bizarre aspect of it where you are voluntarily – Pushing the BS, and anyone who gets it kind of knows it, and we're kind of okay with it. It's just make sure you understand what it is. It is what it is, and what it is is this machine aimed at hyping these deals, and uh, they've all been hyped. And as you said, the only one that even was a, a word breathed of being overpaid was Christian Kirk. And, you know, what... That And look, we'll talk about Deshaun Watson at some point in the show, obviously. But it really is mindful of that. Um, you know, I, and again, I'm not holding my hand up here and saying, oh my God, I, you know, I, I'm one of the only guys who was critical of this, of this deal. But the point but you is... Are. <clears throat> but you are. You hold your hand up and say it. I am. But the point is, my point is not to say, hey, look at me. My point is to say, how in the world are there not more people looking at this deal skeptically and with a jaundiced eye and saying, why in the world did the Cleveland Browns voluntarily buy $80 million, $80 million, give a man with 22 civil cases hanging over his head? How do they voluntarily do that knowing that 
his immediate future over the next year and maybe even two could be subject to the legal process and not being able to play football for part of that time. I just, I simply don't understand it. I don't, I don't get it. We're going to talk about that next, but you make a valid point because there's been this groundswell. There's been this, ooh, Deshaun's back. There's been that competition that broke out last week before between two, uh, four teams. And, and a lot of stuff got lost in the shuffle. And I got to give you a ton of credit because you, your handling of it on Monday in Football Morning in America was kind of the Deion Sanders bucket of ice water over Tim McCarver's head that woke me up to it. There's a part of this story that is still very much alive. And we're going to get you up to speed on all of that and try to help you understand where it goes from here when this Friday edition of PFT Live continues right after this. Surprising news on Thursday afternoon. There was another grand jury in Texas, Brazoria County, was looking at the 10th criminal complaint against Deshaun Watson. As it turns out, one of the 10 women who went to the Houston Police Department had a claim that occurred outside the jurisdiction of Harris County. And... It kind of came up last week or two weeks ago, Peter, when the Harris County Grand Jury was looking at nine criminal complaints. Like, we're, I thought there were 10. And someone led me to believe that the person just didn't show up. Well, now we know why the person didn't show up, because the person got diverted to the county that had jurisdiction over that criminal complaint. And it created a few hours of uncertainty as to what was going to happen. But at the end of the day, no indictment of Deshaun Watson. And if a prosecutor is sufficiently motivated... And I think if you just take these allegations and you assume them to be true, you're going to get indicted on some charge. I don't think the prosecutors wanted to take on this fight. You got to prove these cases beyond a reasonable doubt. There's a lot of prosecutors that exercise their very broad discretion to avoid cases that they, they think they may spend a lot of time and money on and lose. And the way you present or don't present evidence to a grand jury can influence very significantly whether or not the grand jury indicts so yet again we have a decision by a grand jury to not indict Deshaun Watson but yet again we need to say that doesn't mean he didn't do something he shouldn't have done all it means is a grand jury didn't indict him on a criminal charge and unless we're in the room and it's just the prosecutor and the grand jury the defendant's not represented the alleged victims aren't represented Whatever the prosecutor says or doesn't say, that's what the grand jury hears. And that's what the grand jury responds to. And a good prosecutor comes out of that grand jury room with the indictments that he or she wants and the non-indictments that he or she wants, Peter. So we need to understand that. This is not a trial. This is not an end result. This is not the hand of God coming down and saying this person is innocent and this person is guilty. This is the process being short-circuited before it can even get going, either because the grand jury truly believed the evidence wasn't there or because the prosecutor didn't want them to believe the evidence was truly there because the prosecutor didn't want to take on that fight. You see it all the time, Mike, and, and not many people really understand this the way you do. I certainly don't. But it was clear that when in Harris County two weeks ago, when Deshaun Watson was not indicted for those on those nine charges brought by the women, uh, was not indicted criminally, 
then it was basically open the gate. Now you, we can sign Deshaun Watson. Yeah, 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 he's got these other things that we have to deal with. And, and look, um, there, there, is, there is something that, I mean, the whole, the whole tenor of my argument on this is very, very simple. How in the world do you sign a guy to be the face of your franchise? How do you do it when you do not know what is going to happen in these 22 other cases? And you don't know really whether there's anybody else out there uh, who might come forward. And so that's my, my thing is not that I don't think Deshaun Watson shouldn't play football. I think one day, of course, he should be able to play football. But not until these cases are adjudicated and there is some finality to them. Uh, there's no way I would sign, I'd I, I do a contract. I, all four of those teams, in my opinion, uh, are at fault for wanting to do a contract with a guy and make him the face, face of your franchise. When it's been proven now, Mike, that nobody in of those four teams talked to the attorney uh, for uh, the aggrieved women or talked to any of the women. And so I don't know how serious uh, a, 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 an investigation you undertook when you talked to all people who were going to say nice things about Deshaun Watson. <laughs> so, and, and, it's, and, and believe me, before this happened, Deshaun Watson was seen as an exemplary character. And he may be. He might be, Mike. But the fact is, we don't know. And the Cleveland Browns just basically did something. They handed the first gigantic, fully guaranteed contract to a player in NFL history, not having any idea, thinking, oh, well, we know what's going to happen. He's not going to be found guilty. We're, we're confident in him. Why? Why? And so, because he's a nice guy? I mean, that's the reason why this thing really gets my dander up. There's a guy named John Frayne, who is the Cleveland Browns director of security. His job's on the line here, Peter. He's the one who would have been responsible for doing the investigation into Deshaun Watson. They may have engaged someone from the outside for this one, but they have to feel confident based upon the information that was developed that this is going to be a manageable problem for them. Short term, it may cause some discomfort, some fan backlash, unavailability of Deshaun Watson for portions of the 2022 season. It's one of the reasons why they have Jacoby Brissett now. But if they just get this wrong in some major way, if there's some other alleged victim out there, or if there's some turn this take, if the, if the feds get involved and Tony Busby, the lawyer for the 22 women, was trying to get the federal government involved last year, if there's some unexpected development that makes Deshaun Watson unavailable for all of 2022 and into 2023, John Frame better get his resume together because he's going to be the one that takes the fall if this blows up in the Browns' face. And one point I want to make before I move on, with the other angles in this, Peter, I can understand why they didn't talk to Busby because it's a no-win situation if you talk to Busby. If you don't talk to Busby, he's going to get up and he's going to thump his chest and he's going to crow that these people never contacted me. If you do talk to Busby, 
Number one, you're going to get a very skewed, warped version of reality because that's what lawyers do. And number two, he's going to hound you after the fact. I can't believe they traded for this guy after they contacted me and I told them all of these things. They don't care about the things I told them. They don't care about the things these women endured. So if you've got to choose one of these two evils, the better evil is to not engage Busby at all. Just ignore him because you know what he's going to say and you know what he's going to do either way and do your investigation otherwise. Assuming that they have a path to getting the information they need to come to a conclusion, if you can bypass the guy who has every reason to be over the top and is going to come after you either way, if you can bypass him, you should. I guess so, but you say if you talk to Busby, you get a skewed version of reality. Well, what did they get? Oh, well, they, I mean, isn't only talking to one side of this, isn't that also a skewed ver- version of reality, potentially? Maybe it isn't. As I say, Mike, as I say, we don't know precisely what happened in all these cases. We have one side of many stories. Jenny Varentis has reported on this uh, extensively, first at Sports Illustrated, now the New York Times. But some of the descriptions in here, you just keep saying to yourself, is woman after woman after woman lying? Is everyone making this up? Is no one telling the truth here? And, and look, because the, the, the so-called massage therapy business doesn't necessarily have the, the greatest of reputations sometimes, Okay, it's easy to say, you know, I'm answering a question in my column on Monday about, oh, you know about those massage therapists. You know what kind of business that is. No, tell me that. And why in the world does every, almost, I shouldn't say every, a large portion of players in the NFL, I mean, they all are engaging massage therapists to give him a massage and then do a little bit more than that? Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's nonsense. It's just nonsense. So, and, and again, look, I don't know what happened. You don't know what happened. We don't know for sure what happened. All I can say is I would never in a million years sign a contract that anchors my franchise with someone who's got 22 cases hanging over his head. I just, I'm still incredulous a week later. And my point on the investigation is, and it goes back to John Frayne, whatever he did, other than presumably talking to Rusty Harden, who represents Deshaun Watson, David Mulugeta, the agent, Harden, the lawyer, Mulugeta, the agent, Watson directly, you better have something else to get us to the point where we're comfortable with this. And, if you strategically choose not to engage the guy who is going to come after you, no matter what you do, that's fine, but you better have something else. And that's where you rely on the expertise of these security directors who are former law enforcement, who know how to get to the bottom of things and know how to get behind the curtain to get the impressions of prosecutors or the police officers who took the statements or how the NFL reacted when the NFL interviewed these individuals. There's ways to get to it. There's deposition transcripts that can be studied. There's deposition videos that can be reviewed. So there's a lot there short of going to Busby. The point is, and we're on the same page 100%, before you do this, you better be damn sure your guy's clean. And 
the facts that are available to the rest of us. I remember last year when this was all unfolding because it was happening right around now. It was like every day there was another lawsuit. You know, last year, every day uh, there's another Deshaun lawsuit. This year, every day there's another trade. The past two years, every day there's been something. But we forget about it. And when it started, it was one. Okay, when there's one, all right, you know, the process will play out and we'll see what happens. Antonio Brown had one lawsuit alleging sexual misconduct. But then there's two and you kind of stop. Then there's three, and then it gets to four. You know, I don't know what the number is that gets to the point where you say something's not right here, but it's something less than 22. When you get to 22 and two others who made criminal complaints and didn't file lawsuits, so 24 in all, when you get to 24, I think you're squarely in the something stinks here, and they all, as you said, can't be lying. They all can't be engaged in some vast conspiracy where they're being engineered by one person, Tony Busby, to hold their stories together. And no one in a year has has said to anyone, you know, nothing really happened here. And it's just this lawyer trying to cook all this up and he's paying us money under the table to tell this big lie. You would have something like that. Somebody's breaking ranks by now if you've got 24 people tied together in this massive conspiracy. It's impossible to hold that many people together for a year. So something went on here. And the statement from Rusty Harden yesterday, we're thrilled that the Brazoria County Grand Jury cleared Deshaun Watson of the one remaining criminal allegation. We've known all along what people who learned the facts also know. Deshaun Watson committed no crimes. In fact, two separate grand juries have now found that there wasn't even probable cause to believe he committed a crime. That gets back to what we were talking about earlier. The grand jury makes decisions based on what the prosecutor puts on the T. And the prosecutor has incredibly broad leeway to decide what will and won't be presented and how it will and won't be presented to a grand jury. So it's possible that even if the worst of the allegations are accurate, it technically doesn't become a crime under the laws of the state of Texas. Although based upon some of the allegations we've seen, I find that hard to believe. And I think Watson's camp was at least bracing for the possibility of some misdemeanor indictments. But that still doesn't change the fact that you have 22 separate lawsuits, Peter, where there are allegations of a violation of persons' rights, sexual assault, and other misconduct. And, I, I, you know, hey, if he wins all 22, more power to him. And he apparently plans to fight all 22. That's a different issue we need to get into. He apparently intends to fight all 22, and he may win all 22. But somewhere between 1 and 22, you get to a point where I agree with you. You take a step back and say, what's really going on here? And you had four teams throw caution to the wind because a competition broke out for the services of Deshaun Watson. And they jumped into it. And once it ended and the dust started to settle, I think that's when people started to say, wait a minute. Is this a competition that even should have happened? And uh, we'll see. Mike, one team that uh, lost here, I can tell you, uh, because I've spoken to this team, to a high-ranking employee of this team, I can tell you one team is glad they lost. And, you know, it's easy to say that after the fact. I'm sure they would have, uh, you know, said all these laudable things. But, you know, I believe that, that one of the reasons why at least one of these teams lost is that this team was not willing to do anything with the contract. And, you know, 
if you're if you're trying aggressively, you know, uh, to 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 really get a player, okay, and you you do everything you can, um, you know, to try to get the player. That's one thing, which I think that's where the Cleveland Browns are. But at least one of the teams involved was not willing to do anything with the contract. And so, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me in the last few days, oh, you should be critical of all four teams for going after him. Well, I'd, I would like to see, first of all, who, if somebody else got him, what were the uh, conditions under which they signed him? Did they give him a new contract? Did they come out and say, we have full trust that he never did anything, that he's being charged, what, whatever. Or, you know, would they take the guy, uh, the player under the existing contract and say, he's got a lot of proving to do and we're going to really hope this turns out great because he's a great football player, but let's not make any judgments about him right now. Somebody comes out and says that, I say, good. That's the way that this should have been handled. Well, and... Peter, one of the things that I think everyone lost sight of on this, Deshaun Watson didn't want out of Houston because of his contract. Four months before he started campaigning for a trade, he signed a $40 million per year contract. He was due to make $35 million fully guaranteed this season. He had a $17 million roster bonus due next March that became fully guaranteed in late March. But when you manage to... Setting aside the criminal aspect of this, when you manage to create a competition, a four-way tug-of-war for this guy's services, and the Texans did a brilliant job of basically pre-qualifying any interested team before they could even talk to Deshaun, because the worst-case scenario for the Texans is there's only one team Deshaun wants to play for, then you got no leverage when it's time to negotiate a trade. You had four teams that satisfied your minimum expectations, and they battled it out to get to Sean Watson and Jimmy Haslam decided I have to have this guy. And how am I going to do it? I'm going to give him 46 million a year, fully guaranteed for five years. And uh, fine, that's fine. But you know what? There's a chance you're going to be paying him all that money this year. And he's not going to play at all because he's going to fight these cases and they're not going to be resolved. And someone who has kept his mouth shut for a year and may keep it shut for several more months because the league has learned don't do anything until you have to. Possibility of paid leave is still out there, Peter. And I don't think Watson's camp understands that. I think that they believe that they're either going to get a suspension now, six games, in the aftermath of the grand jury's work, or the NFL is not going to do anything until the cases are resolved. There was a belief by the Dolphins last year that because they wanted all cases to be settled before they traded for him, that if the cases would have been settled, it would have been a six-game suspension last year. So it's either six games now or cases settle or otherwise resolve, maybe six-game suspension later, but in the interim, he can play. See, I think there is an outcome to this, potentially, where Watson's under the impression he's good to go. The Browns are under the impression he's good to go. And the commissioner says, as week one of the preseason approaches, you're you're not playing while these cases are pending. There's too many. There's too many. We can't let you play. You're on paid leave. And it's not punishment. The NFL is on record for eight years now with what I think is a misguided take 
that it's not punishment if the player is being paid because I think the punishment is not letting him play. This isn't a paid vacation for somebody who hates their job. This is paid leave while you're prevented from doing the thing you love to do and the thing you want to do, which is play football. But they'll do it. They won't hesitate to do it because they don't want the 2022 season to be undermined by every Cleveland Browns game being presented with the broadcast partners having to point out that that guy out there playing quarterback for the Browns has 22 civil lawsuits alleging sexual misconduct pending against him. Because at the end of the day, there's still a lot of football fans that don't know. And they're not going to find out until the NFL is forced to tell everybody about it during Browns games. That's why they do this. And that's the thing, Peter, that Watson and Mulugeta and Harden and Haslam, and Andrew Barry, and Kevin Stefanski, they all better be ready for it. Because I've already heard the rumblings that it's coming if these cases don't get settled. That's why I said a week ago, when we heard about the trade, first thing I said on PFTPM, take that money that you just got, Deshaun Watson, and, and settle these cases. Give these 22 individuals the justice that they want and turn the page on this and move on. That's the only play right now, and I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's going to keep fighting, and I think he believes there's a, there's a way that he gets 22 outcomes in his favor in the civil courts. How incredible would it be if two things happen? One, that Deshaun Watson got $46 million this year and never took a snap. Number two, if his suspension came in 2023 when the suspension would be based on every week would be one eighteenth of 46 million. And I'll tell you this, the NFL had better not allow that contract next year in, in this case to be rewritten. The NFL had better uh, adjudicate this based on the fact that if he does get suspended next year, he gets suspended based on his salary of $46 million, not some phony uh, $1 million salary that you know that Haslam uh, or, or the Browns, I shouldn't say you know, but it's possible that they would try to do that to help out Deshaun Watson. So... Both of those would be incredible. Either one of them would be incredible. Both would be the kind of double whammy that would show what a huge mistake this contract at this time. I'm not saying this contract is going to turn out to be stupid, but at this time, it just makes no sense. There's another approach that the NFL could take. They could impose a suspension based upon what they currently know the behavior that currently happened. And I know people say, well, how can you suspend him if he wasn't charged with a crime? Go back and study the Ben Roethlisberger case. And frankly, the letter that was sent by the commissioner to Roethlisberger in 2010, you can take chunks of that and say that applies directly to Deshaun Watson. It's behaviors that require an intervention. There's been an admission by Rusty Harden that, that these massages that he actively sought out, that Watson actively sought out on social media – at times became voluntarily uh, sexual encounters. So, there, you know, the, the commissioner could very easily say there's something here that requires therapy and counseling and, and absence from the game. They could do that while the cases play out and reserve the right 
to suspend him even more if they choose once the cases play out. But but you still have a window of Deshaun Watson playing in 2022 where these cases are still pending. I just think he needs to settle the cases. And Peter, when Tom Brady was facing this four-game deflategate suspension, the Patriots did exactly the thing that you said the Browns shouldn't be allowed to do next year. They already did it this year on the way in the door with a ridiculously low salary that minimizes the impact of a suspension. But Tom Brady's contract was reworked and his salary plummeted and it minimized the impact of his suspension. The NFL has allowed that loophole to exist in plain sight and multiple players have taken advantage of it. And the Browns would say next year, we're doing this for cap reasons. We're doing it for cap reasons. And it doesn't matter what they say. The league has allowed it. Maybe instead of plugging this goofy loophole that they want to plug that a a team that's not in the playoffs, if it cuts a player, a playoff team can't sign him, and that's something that rarely happens, maybe this is the loophole they should plug. Maybe the suspension should, should just be based on the cap number. The money that you lose isn't your game check. You have to forfeit the cap number that applies to that game, the proration of the signing bonus. Everything Because the cap number is always larger, and when you do that signing bonus, that's what when you extend it, that's what happens. Your salary's low but your cap number is higher, there's got to be another way, is my point, to prevent what, what you rightfully are, are pointing out, that it's too easy and it's too simple if he's suspended next year for the Browns to dramatically reduce what the financial exposure would be for Deshaun Watson. You know, the last thing I'll say about this is that it's just the sad part of this, and I've heard from several to many Browns fans who were disgusted with what happened. But the other part of it that is probably, you know, more, you know, as disgusting or more so is that is the amount of money that, and we'll see how it ends up playing out, but he's already made all of his money in 2021 for not playing football. And we'll see how much money he's going to make in the future, again, for not playing football, if indeed he is either put on the commissioner's exempt list or when any suspension does come down. But, you know, he, he, he will make potentially, you know, if you judge it really on total compensation for that year, I mean, who knows how much money he'll be, he'll be making, 20, 30, maybe even $40 million, you know, to not play football. And it's just, the whole thing is the biggest tail wagging the dog thing I've ever seen since in the years I've covered the NFL. One thing that I have neglected to mention in this segment, Peter, today is the day that Watson meets the media. One o'clock Eastern press conference. We thought based upon the way they kind of slipped out the trio of statements from ownership GM and coach last week, that maybe they were going to dispense with a press conference in this case. Watson, now that he's been fully cleared by two grand juries, he's going to face the media. It'll be interesting to see what kind of questions he gets. It'll be very interesting to see what kind of answers he provides and how people react. And you're right. Browns fans aren't happy. My niece is a huge Browns fan. Huge. I mean, she has suffered through years of crap and has not deviated. She's thought about it. She's thought about it, but she's always stuck with the Browns. She's not happy about this. And I asked her last week, if he settles these cases now and they're gone and they're done and it's over and this cloud doesn't just move from Houston to Cleveland 
of these allegations hovering over this guy. Would that make you feel better? She said, that would make me feel better. I think a lot of Browns fans aren't happy, but to the extent that they aren't dragged down, that's what the Browns organization is missing. You're dragging your fan base down with these 22 allegations still pending. You, you are putting it over your team now. And uh, that's why I think Stephen Ross, for all of the criticism he gets, he was not going to let his team trade for Deshaun Watson unless those 22 cases were settled. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to that, Peter. I mean, look, it, it, you know, Chris Greer said it at the scouting combine. We're out of the Deshaun Watson business. And I'm sure that once Brian Flores left the organization, that was something that uh, the organization decided. You know, there's been an incredible amount of, uh, you know, speculation on who was driving that bus. Uh, I believe it was Brian Flores. But, you know, who knows? We'll, we'll, we may never find out for sure. But whoever it was, in my opinion, Miami made the smart decision. It, Whatever happens eventually with Deshaun Watson, to trade for him now, to sign him now, particularly to give him the biggest contract, the biggest guaranteed contract by far in NFL history now is just, I, there are not enough, you know, uh, malodorous words to describe how, how I feel about that, but it, it, it stinks to high heaven. And one last point on the Dolphins. You're right. I'm told that Flores was fixated. That's the word that resonates with me. He was fixated on getting Deshaun Watson, but everybody else was on board with it too. But he was fixated on making it happen. And look at how they played once the trade window closed. They won eight out of nine games. It was kind of – see, there's something about clearing clouds away. Whatever the cloud may be, if you've got something hovering over your team – there's something to be said for making it go away. And, and if I'm Jimmy Haslam, I, I've already said these cases have to go away. If I'm Jimmy Haslam today, I'm pulling somebody aside and I'm saying, look, look, there's only one way to do this the right way. Make these cases go away. And I don't mean it in a pejorative way or, or you know, not you know, properly secure justice with these individuals. Have a mediation session with each one of them. And find out what it's going to take to make them feel like that they have had justice done for them. Because that's why you sue somebody. You sue them for money damages. Let's figure out what it takes to make you feel like you have been treated fairly. One through 22, make it happen. Make it end. And allow Deshaun Watson and the Browns to go forward. Watson to take his punishment from the NFL. And Browns fans not be dragged down by something that they don't believe. And they're right. They don't deserve to be dragged down by. Let's take a break. Kyler Murray speaks. Do we believe what he had to say about the issues or lack thereof percolating between Murray and the Cardinals? We'll talk about that next on PFT Live. 